0: Hi, Alison. So this week we got the big reveal, Mm -hmm. the 2024 Paris Olympic mascot. And it is interesting. It is indeed
1: interesting. (laughs) Yeah, nice word. A red triangular blob
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: with with big blue eyes. It's supposed to evoke the cap that is the symbol of the French Revolution, known as the Phrygian cap.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and you can see this cap on statues of Marianne and Mm. on, on the postage stamps. So it is symbolic, but mm, the execution in this mascot, it leaves a lot to the imagination. Sadly, it leaves nothing to the well, imagination. <laughs> you know, I,
1: when I first saw it, I just saw it as a, I, I read it as a, a rather unfortunate Emoji, which is usually brown and a <laughs> bit disgusting, it's been mocked, uh, especially on social media. Some women have said it looks rather like a sex toy, even a female sexual organ. Mm, the head of the French Olympic Committee did defend
0: the design mm. and its symbol,
1: yeah, with the you know, this very sort of intellectual yeah. idea of freedom and revolution and everything, but seemingly forgetting what it actually looks like. <laughs> That's true. And Then there's another controversial point, which is the issue that the the toy versions aren't made in China. Sure, sure, which yeah. is an issue when
0: people are looking at things made in France, but, you know, there are a few if any stuffed toy factories here in France, mm. especially those that could make these toys at the right price point. So that argument's a little disingenuous. What is interesting about this mascot though is that it's inclusive. The Paralympic mascot is the same, just mm. with like a runner blade instead of a foot on one of them. Mm-hmm. So past Olympics have had a completely separate mascots for the Paralympic Games, the Paris Olympics have decided they're going to go with the same for both. It's kind of
1: interesting. It is interesting. And uh, yeah, as you say, nice and inclusive. Anyway, it is at the end of the day, a bit of fun, which mascots are Mm -hmm. all about, aren't they, to be honest? And it's a reminder, the Olympics are coming on fast. Sarah, this song, La Corrida, by Francis Cabrel, was a hit back in 1994, but it's resurfaced recently. It denounces bullfighting, and it's seen from the bull's
2: perspective.
1: I hear them laugh as I gasp. I see them dance as I fall. I didn't think you could have such fun around a tomb. Is this world serious? Sings Cabrel in the voice of the bull. The song has become an anthem for the anti-corrida campaigners here in France, and they're being led by an MP from the hard-left France Unbowed Party. He's called Émeric Caron. So he got elected on the anti-corrida platform last June. He's drawn up a bill that will be debated and voted on next week. Caron and other opponents say bullfighting is barbaric, even immoral, and a practice from a bygone age. Well, animal cruelty is already punished under French law. It is. There's an article in France's Penal Code which makes animal cruelty and abuse. Punishable with a three year prison term and 45,000 euro fines. Bullfighting does fall into that category and it's already been outlawed in most of France. Mm. Most of France, mm. right? But not everywhere. I guess that's the sticking point. It is. The law provides for some cultural exceptions in areas where it is, quote, an uninterrupted local tradition. That's the case in some 10 departments in the south and southwest of France, where between around 160 and 200 corridas are organised every year. Some festivals like this one in Istres, near Marseille, are held in large arenas and famous toreros or, if you like, matadors can still fill them up. Karen wants to get the penal code amended to ban these events and he maintains the public is ready for change. Recent surveys do suggest that's true, uh, with between 70 and 80 percent in favour of a ban. But the aficionados insist bullfighting is an art form, an integral part of their local culture and identity. And MPs, especially up here in the north, in Paris, just don't understand. And many of them have probably never seen a bullfight. I mean, I certainly haven't. Émeric Caron hasn't either. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And I've never watched a Corridor myself, and I had no particular desire to, but I thought for the purposes of this podcast, I should. So I went to a bullfighting festival last weekend in the village of Vauvert in the Camargue, which has a 3,000-person bullfighting arena, and where people are still very passionate about it. So we're waiting now in the ring here in Vauvert, and I can hear this banging noise, which means that... Maybe the bull is going to come into the arena. Here he is. Here's the black bull. This bull isn't here to fight. He's taking part in what's known as a course camarguez, or bull running, typical of the region. Several young men, dressed all in white, enter the ring. They're called rasteurs, and have to try and grab a rosette from between the bull's horns. Whoever succeeds gets a financial reward. This is real sport. The men run extremely fast, trying to grab the rosette and then dive over the barrier to safety. Sometimes it's a very close shave. This is just one of several bull related shows at today's festival in the arena in Vauvert. It's been organized to pay tribute to Manola Vanigas, a Venezuelan torero who settled here. He became a matador in 2017, but his career was cut short the following year after he was seriously injured during a bullfight. <laughs> we see him hobbling on crutches, a reminder that bullfighting is a serious and dangerous affair. But this hasn't deterred pupils at the bullfighting schools in nearby Arles and Nîmes, who dream of becoming toreros. A few have come here today to show off their budding bullfighting skills with young bulls. They deftly wave their purple and yellow capes, try and place little picks known as bonderie into the bull's back. On several occasions, adult staff members have to rush into the ring when a youngster loses control of the situation and is tussled to the floor. The 14-year-old Lizio looks elegant in his tight, high-waisted grey trousers and bolero jacket. He swishes his cape around, drawing in the bull, arching his back in the characteristic choreographed pose of the torero that he aspires to become one day. He's a pupil at the Arl bullfighting school where he trains four hours a week. I would like to do my job I want to be a professional torero," he says, "because the corrida is everything for us. We live and breathe bulls; it's all we think about. To be able to express ourselves through bullfighting feels good.
2: The bullfighting school is
1: a family. We're very close, and when one of us succeeds, everyone does. That's what I love about this world. The school has ten pupils, all boys. Their mentor is Medi Savali. A former pupil who became one of France's most acclaimed toreros in his 20s before a shortage of contracts forced him to stop in 2018. He's now the school's director. I
0: teach them the basics of how to bullfight, of course, but we also educate them a bit too. Teach them about respect. We're not their parents, but sometimes the kids let loose a bit too much, and we're there to channel them and put them back on track.
1: Savalli was born and raised in Bariol, a tough suburb of Aul with high unemployment and few opportunities for youngsters. He started at the bullfighting school aged 11 and he says it saved him
0: i could have gone off the rails but my passion for bullfighting got me out of that neighborhood and i was lucky to be able to live it to the full i love what it feels like it's difficult to explain but the sense of adrenaline the joy when everything goes well the sadness
2: when it doesn't it's lots of different sensations in one profession it's magical profession
1: At lunchtime, the aficionados eat paella on long trestle tables outside the arena and discuss corrida. Then we head back into the arena where a bigger crowd has now gathered to watch seven toreros from France, but also Mexico, Venezuela, Spain and Colombia. They've come to bullfight for free in honour of Manuelo Vanegas. Yves Le the president of the Owl School is helping me understand this very coded bullfighting ritual. He says, bullfighting is truly popular. C'est un, un art non-elitiste. It's a non-elitist form of art, and that's quite exceptional and unusual in France. You don't have to have been to a certain school or studied something in particular to be able to appreciate the beauty in this. Everyone can connect on an emotional level. The mix of celebration and the search for something aesthetic makes it a very rich and unifying cultural event. The bullfighting ritual is divided into three distinct parts, separated by a special bugle call. Hey, toro, toro, says the bullfighter, trying to draw it in. The idea is for him to size up the bull, assess its character. He coaxes it towards a horseman known as the picador. There we are. Picador plunges his long spear into the bull's shoulder and neck muscles, weakening the animal. That didn't take very long. In the second part, the torero carefully uses his large cape, swivelling to avoid the horns, while trying to plant his spiked anderillas with their hooked points into the bull's back. They hang down, two on either side, red with blood. And then the final, most controversial part, the estocada. Holding a red cape called a muleta in one hand and his slender sword in the other, the matador stands still, fixing the bull firmly in the eyes before thrusting his sword through its shoulders and into the heart. <laughs> the crowds cheer at the skillful strike, waving white handkerchiefs to show the torero deserves a bull's ear for his performance. But another matador gets booed when it all drags on too long and the bull seems to take too long to die. Six out of the seven bulls are killed this afternoon. Bullfighting fight? is enjoyed as a family in this part of France, and there are many youngsters in the audience. Some MPs have called for children to not be allowed to attend, saying it's not suitable family entertainment. Isabelle Castor is here with her family, including a baby and a three year old. She does not find it shocking. What I find shocking is children playing video games, children watching TV and the news, whereas Corrida, for us, is an art. It's not shocking to take children to Corrida if you explain to them what's happening. Castell says people have the right not to like Corrida but believes supporters should be left to indulge their passion. What I don't understand is that they want to impose their choices on us, but they cannot force us to stop a part of our tradition and culture. Lizio and his fellow student Luca went into the arena today holding up a banner reading Yes to Corrida. They're also horrified at the idea their long family tradition might come to an end. My, My great grandfather used to bullfight bull with Miura bulls in the fields all night, says Luca. The bull is bred to fight, and they have a wonderful life. They graze in the fields, have lots to eat, they do what they want. they want about there is cruelty involved, but it's not necessarily a problem you shouldn't deny it it's an inherent part of Kofidan of being human and what is particularly inherent to human beings is death. in fact, this is one of the last places in our culture nowadays where you can see and think about our relationship to death le rapport à la mort. Locals say a ban would have a major economic impact. These bulls, bred only for fighting, would simply disappear and breeders would lose their livelihood. It would also be a blow to the local economy of towns that host ferias, of which bullfighting is a big attraction. Yves Lebas says Corrida could end up disappearing But it shouldn't be through a ban. If Corrida has to disappear, then it will. But it shouldn't be through a ban, a law, because that would mean the north of France has imposed its vision of what culture is on the south. I don't think we need that kind of division, given the current climate in our country. Mehdi Savali says he will fight to make sure Corrida continues... However, he doesn't want his seven-year-old son to follow in his footsteps.
0: It's too hard and too dangerous. I don't want my son to do this.
1: So, Alison, how did you feel about um, your first bullfighting experience? Mm, Yeah, it was a mixed bag, Sarah, but I have to say, I was able to appreciate the ritual. I could see how people could really get into the the whole spectacle. Mm. Um, And it, it was... Sometimes quite mesmerising, you know, especially the, this image of the, the unprotected Torero facing off alone against the bull. It's quite powerful. Hmm. Afterwards, it's clear that I I didn't enjoy watching the bull being killed. I wish that that didn't have to happen. So, is bullfighting likely to get banned in France? It's far from sure. All 75 of Caron's fellow France unbound MPs will vote for a ban. So will Green MPs. But it's difficult to know how the other groups will vote in the end. And then we're not even sure it will get discussed in Parliament because Mm. it's fourth on the list of bills. And well, they may just run out of time. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Even if it gets passed in the National Assembly, it will then have to go, like all bills, to the Senate, where right-wing MPs are in the majority, and many of them are very attached to this notion of French traditions. Right. Some say a ban may not be necessary in the end. The practice will gradually die out of its own accord as its popularity wanes, because while the flame still burns for some people, there are fewer young people perhaps prepared to make the personal sacrifice needed to become toreros. And without them, well, there is no corrida. <laughs>
0: So going back to history now, way back to 885, the end of the ninth century, the siege of Paris by the Vikings started on November 25th, 885, and it ended up being the undoing of the emperor, Charles Le Gros, Charles the Fat, mm-hmm. and the beginning of the end of the unified Carolingian Empire, which started determining the shape of what France is today.
1: Yeah, because Paris at that time was not the big capital
0: that we know today. Nope, nope. It was a town on the island in the Seine that today we know as the Ile
1: de la Cité. Yeah, not true. Yeah,
0: yeah. There you go. Paris was the capital of the Kingdom of West Franks or West Francia, which was part of the larger Frankish Empire that was established by Charlemagne. In 885, the Emperor of West Francia, and then the rest of the Carolingian Empire, which included parts of Germany and Italy today, was Charles the Fat. He's the great grandson of Charlemagne. So Vikings had been attacking West Francia for decades. They laid siege to Paris in 845. They showed up in March with 120 ships with thousands of men and women. King Charles the Bald, the king at the time, he assembled a small army, but it wasn't enough to face them off and they plundered and occupied the city. They withdrew when the king agreed to pay a ransom, 7,000 French livres or 2,570 kilos of gold and silver. Hmm. That was indeed an incentive to start protecting the city. Yep, yep. They started upping the fortifications. Now, strategically, Paris had these two low-lying footbridges over the Seine connecting the island to the banks, and they could block ships from going farther upriver, say to Burgundy. So they were ready when, in 885, the Vikings showed up in West Francia again with hundreds of ships and thousands of people on board. The man in charge of Paris was then Count Odo of the Robertine dynasty. He's the rival to the Charlemagne's uh, Carolingian dynasty. And and he prepared for their arrival by fortifying the bridgeheads with towers guarding each bridge. The Vikings led by the commander Siegfried showed up in Paris then on November 25th, 885, they wanted to get through to reach Burgundy, but the Bishop of Paris said no, and so the Vikings attacked.
1: Hmm. I imagine there was a lot of catapulting. Yeah, stuff yeah, like that.
0: yeah, they threw all kinds of things at the fortifications. They also used battering rams and fire, but they couldn't get through, hmm. so they set siege. They built a camp outside of the city, and they were there for months. After four months, Siegfried left a large number of his army further north to go pillage because he was getting tired of Paris, and he left his commander, Rollo, in charge. And so he was the one to negotiate when Charles the Fat showed up with the imperial army in October of the next year. An imperial army? Wow, probably Hmm. enough to, to crush the Vikings in that case. It would have been enough, but Charles the Fat decided actually not to fight. Instead, he did allow them to sail to Burgundy, which was in revolt against him. Turning the enemy against your other enemy. Yeah, and he promised to pay the Vikings uh, about 250 kilos of silver if they then left the next spring, which they did. Now, Count Odo wasn't happy about any of this. In fact, he and the Parisians then refused to let the Vikings back down the Seine when they were on their way out, so Mm. they had to drag their boats overland to the Marne in order to leave. Um, And Charles the Fat really didn't gain any popularity there. Um, He stepped down, and then Odo was elected king of West Francia. He was the first Carolingian King of the Franks and his 10 year rule marked the real separation of West Francia from the rest of the empire and it would never reunite and that's what set up the future shape of France that we know today.
1: Climate activists have it out for famous paintings these days. Yeah, they've been throwing, for example, black liquid on a Klimt painting that was in Vienna this week. Yeah, yeah, and this
0: follows mashed potatoes Mm -hmm. thrown at a Monet in Germany and a British group that threw soup at Van Gogh's Sunflowers in London's National Gallery last month.
1: Yeah, I mean, not very nice for art lovers, Mm. but the idea of the action is to draw attention to climate change. The Viennese activists this week said that they were protesting the government's use of fossil fuels. Yeah,
0: so here in France, um, haven't been any paintings yet. Um, activists with a group called Dernière Renovation, the last renovation, They have done things like interrupting the Tour de France bike race this summer to draw specific attention to global warming, actually very specifically to building renovations. It's not a very sexy issue, but it is very important in the fight against climate change, since housing is the sector with the most emissions in France after transportation. These activists argue that the government's current plans to force homeowners to better insulate buildings are not enough. And they've been resorting to acts of civil disobedience to draw attention to it. Most of their actions actually have been blocking roads like setting up in front of cars on the périphérique and just blocking traffic wreaking havoc, though they have been experimenting with other forms of direct action, like the Tour de France this summer. Recently, 25-year-old Victor got up on stage at the Paris Opera during a performance of the Magic Flute and interrupted things. He Mm. locked himself up with a bike lock to a ladder on the set, and then he was wearing a shirt on which he had written, in English, we have 879 days left, which makes reference to the three years that the group says we have left to change our ways to avoid the worst effects of global warming. I sat down with Victor and talked about the action specifically, but also more generally about how effective these kinds of actions really are
2: here in France. It was, I think, the first, maybe the second time I went to the opera. So I went up on stage, then I locked myself up. I started talking. I had, like, really prepared something that felt very personal. It was very badly received, but I, I mean, that's expected. I just didn't expect the curtain to fall so quickly. That was like sort of unnerving because, like, with the pressure of like people, you know, bringing you and everything, I was trying to just express that it's absurd that I have to interrupt an opera. There is no link between the performances we choose to interrupt, and uh, it's basically random in the sense that we don't think we can pretend that everything's all right, and so that means interrupting basically anything.
0: But it, what's interesting for me as opera, it, it tends to have this image of a very kind of elitist place, but presumably maybe then full of people who maybe need to hear your message. Is that, I mean, because you're not going around interrupting a, a movie theater full of people going to see the Wakanda movie.
2: Yes. So the idea was that we wanted to interrupt something that we don't generally interrupt. And I don't think our point was to draw attention from people at the opera at the, that night, the idea was really to draw attention outside. And I think most of, like, I would say the big actions we take that are not roadblocks, basically, really have a point of creating a, a conversation outside of the, the event that's being blocked or interrupted.
0: So it's like you do something unusual enough that, you know, the media like us come and start asking you questions and, and give you a platform that you wouldn't otherwise have.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of the idea. Yeah.
0: So afterwards, right, you got taken into police custody and then you, when you got out, then you made the rounds of some TV and radio programs. And so you did get a platform.
1: Quand vous bloquez l'autoroute A6 euh, vendredi? Oui.
0: But euh, I mean, was it the platform you wanted bloquée, because you're put on these round tables with like people debating the action. Euh
2: yeah, aucune cause n'est supérieure finalement à la liberté des gens alors, du coup, il y avait deux points dans votre question. Le premier point, c'était les gens n'ont rien fait. Je suis d'accord so obviously people are are um, drawn to like the the technical details of the actions we take. so it's obviously not always the platform you want to have, but it's really better than no platform at all. We're not at a point where we can be picking on our platforms. We have to really hammer it down on everyone and everything that the government isn't doing uh, enough.
0: What was your very first action?
2: I blocked the A13 for uh hour and a half. Uh, it was in June.
0: How did you feel when you sat on that first highway? What was going on in your head?
2: I think it was the same feeling as the opera, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it's not easy, but I feel like I'm you know, at the right place. I'm so deeply convinced that the government isn't taking enough actions, and that what I'm doing is the right way or at least the least bad way to put pressure on the government so obviously it's like you know a little scary it's like there there's all this you know social pressure of annoying people and everything but i am so convinced that you have the strength i would say to to resist that kind of pressure
0: so direct action is interesting in that you know they're stunts essentially right but you also have marches and giant gatherings, which have also gathered a lot of momentum. I guess on a personal level, you, what is it about direct action that's that's appealing to you?
2: So I don't think people realize that climate change is an existential risk. And so that's really why I'm doing what I'm doing.
0: So when did you sort of get this awareness?
2: Uh, it honestly was, it was very recent. I think it was like gradual, but then I, you know, I passed, a, I would say, a threshold of realization i think one of the realization you have is that we don't have time we are so far behind what we should have been been done and also as like you know former non-militant non, um, non-activist non-nothing seeing from the outside the climate like you know seeing it as like just a social movement maybe i always thought that there was something inefficient and so this direct action is comes from the fact that Everything else failed. We have tried political discourse, we have tried scientific discourse, we have tried petition, we have tried marches to literally no effect. And it's just heartbreaking that we have to take this crazy action. But that's basically all we have left.
0: All these other things you describe, you know, seem very weighty, like, you know, petitions and policies. And here you are, you know, chaining yourself to an opera stage or people throwing soup on paintings. You know, it's a little bit of a disconnect, but what do you see as the results of it?
2: So I think we can pride ourselves in the fact that we have at least given a platform to the issue of renovating buildings, to the fact that the government isn't doing enough and also the need to go into civil resistance.
0: There's a lot of negative reaction just on social media saying, "Who are these people, are these brats, you know? I mean, is that just par for the course? This is what you get when you do these kinds of things?
2: I think I think if you look into like social media, you're always going to find these reactions. A lot of people are going to react negatively because we are affecting them and that's awful and we, we don't like that we have to do this. But there's is the issue, we have to do this. And so that means annoying the wrong people, but... If eventually it puts pressure enough pressure on the government and the government finally enacts uh, an ambitious bill to renovate buildings, then I think all that frustration and anger will will have been worth it
0: on some level you, like, you don't it doesn't it doesn't matter then if you upset people that's actually the point because you're trying to get the attention of the government. But it's interesting to me that you seem to sort of separate the government from the people. In theory, the people elected the government, right? If you annoy enough people, then will the government actually listen to you? And I'm thinking at this in particular in terms of you're blocking drivers, you're blocking, you know, people going to work. You're definitely not getting on people's good sides, but on some level, you don't really care.
2: So we are here to force the government to take action. And Unfortunately, that has the side effect of knowing people. Literally, everything is aligned. like The stars are all aligned to enact uh, an ambitious law about renovating buildings.
0: But So then why not try to get people on board with you to support you rather than antagonizing them?
2: Because the people at large are already on board Mm -hmm. in the sense that there have been numerous democratic, I would say, initiatives. For instance, the Convention citoyenne pour le climat.
0: Yeah, the Citizens Climate Convention yeah. a couple yeah. years ago, where 150 people got together and made proposals to the government
2: on the government's initiative, which was great. But then all these initiatives were basically just thrown away. And so, unfortunately, we we cannot. We would love for people to be on our side, but our objective is that the government really gets onto the side of his population and takes action that are at the level of threat that we are facing. We know we have this risk, there is this risk of being unpopular, and we're fine with it because I don't think like social change happens without a bunch of people getting angry. We wouldn't have to resort to that kind of action if the government did the things right.
0: What do you think of all these people in these museums that have been doing stuff on art? How do you feel about that?
2: I feel that they are right, that we cannot keep pretending that everything's all right. So that also means uh, shocking the public. What I find interesting is that there were actually more people shocked because a work of art could have been damaged, dying by the fact that basically human existence is at risk. I know it's like maybe the most beautiful things we have done as humanity, but humanity is not going to exist if we keep the world functioning as it's functioning right now. In a, in a world where you fight for your survival, you don't enjoy the opera, basically.
0: So is that something, you know, are you guys getting inspired at all by all the attention that, that Van Gogh has gotten? And I mean, we do have quite priceless art here in France. It, it would make a shock. Uh,
2: obviously, we are very inspired and I cannot comment further on that.
1: <laughs> we'll see what, what gets thrown at something in the future. Interesting, Sarah, maybe we'll see something going on in a Paris museum uh, sometime soon. Victor was obviously cagey about any of that, um,
0: though at this point, I guess it does risk becoming a copycat move. I mean, what else is left to throw? Mm-hmm. But um, more seriously, the government is at least aware of what these activists in particular have been doing. Um, in a TV interview this week, Prime Minister Elisabeth Bon was asked specifically about Dernière Renovations, roadblocks, And she said that she understood young people's anxiety, as she put it. But she says the government, they have to be aware, is is quite aware of what's at stake. You know, they're not as clueless as they're being painted out to be. Mm -hmm. She did say that she wasn't sure that these kinds of actions that put other citizens in difficulty are the right approach. But as she says, I understand their concerns. And that's it
1: for Spotlight on France. This episode was mixed by Nicolas Doro. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. And if you want to get in touch with us, why not send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Or you
0: can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, some images from this show to give you a sense of what we're talking about. Um, you can find previous episodes at RFIENglish.com or wherever you get
1: your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, December the first. Bye bye Sarah. Bye Allison.